We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Special guest today is Dr. Mitchell Bard. Dr. Bard is an American foreign policy analyst who specializes in U.S. Middle East policy, in which he received his Ph.D. in political science at UCLA in 1987. He is the executive director of the nonprofit American-Israeli Cooperative Enterprise and the director of the Jewish Virtual Library. He's also a prominent author with an impressive 24 written works since 1991. Dr. Bard has appeared on local, national, and international television, radio shows, and his work has been published in academic journals, magazines, and major newspapers. Today, we will illuminate his 2010 book, The Arab Lobby, a 452-page literal education surrounding the genesis and influence of Saudi Arabia in American politics. Mr. Bard, Dr. Bard, thank you very much for coming on. Glad to be here. Uh, well, my first question will be pretty simple. What gave you the idea to write about the Arab lobby? Well, I had read many a book about the Israeli lobby and the book by two professors, Walton Mearsheimer, had come out, which had been filled with inaccuracies and was in many ways uh, a repetition of a lot of anti-Semitic tropes. And there was no article or book really that gave adequate treatment to what the pro-Arab side has been doing. And there is a long history going back at least to the early 50s where there has been an effort to lobby the US government on behalf of uh, Arab interests. And very little had been exposed about that, especially as it related to efforts to influence the next generation through contributions to universities. Let's, well, let's get to the uh, genesis of the book. Um, there's, a, there's a long history here of how the Saudis became prominent in American politics. And when Standard Oil began their expedition to Saudi Arabia, they located oil reserves near the Al Hassa region along the coast of the Persian Gulf in 1938, leading Everett Lee de Goyler, a prominent oil man himself, to state in 1943 that, quote, the oil in this region is the greatest single prize in oil history, end quote. Was he right? Well, it turned out to be very true for the next, what, uh, 70 or 80 years. Uh, 
the problem as it related to the influence of the Arab lobby was that in 1938, the United States didn't need the oil from Saudi Arabia. And the Saudis really hadn't begun pumping it anyway. But what happened was that uh, the foreign office in Great Britain and the State Department in the United States began to see this as a reason to oppose US support for uh, the Zionist effort to build a state in Israel and later uh, to support US-Israel relations. There was always this fear that was propagated by not only the State Department, but other officials in other parts of the government that if we didn't support the Saudis and other Arab governments, they would not sell us our oil or their oil, and they would not, uh, and it would be more subject to Soviet influence. And so that was used as the pretext for opposing support for the establishment of Israel and later the relationship with Israel. In fact, the Saudis, uh, first of all, as I said before, we didn't need their oil until really the 1960s and 70s. And even before that, the Saudis needed us much more than we needed them. From the mm. beginning, the United States has basically been their security blanket. Mm -hmm. And so it was never a very serious threat that the Saudis would take their ball and go home and play with someone else. Just a follow up to that. Um, but what is the, the Arab lobby in itself? Can you explain? Sure, the Arab lobby in my definition is those interests and organizations and individuals that are seeking to influence US Middle East policy to be supportive of Arab interests often at the expense of US support for Israel. And it has a number of different components. The most powerful and influential are the Arab governments themselves. Much of what they do is behind the scenes, unlike what the pro-Israel community does, which is very transparent and open. Mm -hmm. There are also a whole range of non-governmental organizations that have been supportive of Arab interests. There are also American of Arab descent uh, and other Americans who believe in supporting Arab causes. And there is a whole group within the US government who are typically referred to as Arabists who have the belief that we must, uh, that it's in the best interest of the United States to support the Arab states. And again, often, at the expense of relations with Israel. Well, you, you just touched on something that I was thinking about for uh, quite a few days before our meet today, in that the Israeli lobby itself is very transparent, and very open, um, whereas the Saudi lobby themselves are very uh, behind the scenes, very secretive, very insular. Why do you think that is? Well, the Saudis can exercise influence through their diplomatic channels, which are generally private. They can 
go directly to officials in the government in Washington. The Saudi ambassador for many years uh, was able to simply walk into the Oval Office pretty much anytime he wanted. He had a relationship with various secretaries of state, played tennis or squash, or various uh, social activities with them. And they had no need to have a very public lobbying campaign. And much of the efforts that were made on their behalf were done by lobbying organizations, often made up of former US government officials, which would have to register with the government that they were in fact representing the Saudis, but they don't publicize to uh, anyone else what their activities are. So the Saudis may pay millions of dollars to an organization like Corvus, and that organization in turn will meet with members of Congress, uh, produce various materials, and try to influence U.S. policy to be more sympathetic to, in that, that case, Saudi Arabia. It's done by virtually all the Arab governments to one extent or another. And in fact, now probably even more prevalent than the Saudis is the Qatari uh, lobby, which is spending uh, tens of millions of dollars to try to improve its image and influence uh, the United States to have closer relations with Qatar. Going back to the book, you wrote that um, under the Wilson, Woodrow Wilson administration, that uh, there were many in the White House that were opposed to Zionism and that the oil industry got behind the Arab lobby. 1945 seemed to be a very key year because that was the birth of the United Nations as well as the Arab lobby. Was this the beginning of the Israeli-Saudi special interest groups in the US federal government? No, it really had been going on since 1938 to one extent or another that you had various uh, representatives within the government who, as I say, had a belief that oil was going to be the most important natural resource for our economy and that the best way to secure access to the supply of that oil was to do pretty much what the Saudis wanted us to do. And often that was uh, to oppose what the Zionists were campaigning for and what Israel later campaigned for. The oil industry itself became more and more involved as they became more uh, invested in the oil fields in the Gulf states. Ibn Saud saw the imminent threat posed by Israeli special interest groups in the US, but because of the country's disposition toward human rights, this led to uh, some within the State Department to find dealing with the Saudis troubling. Um, yet many in the State Department saw the benefits of dealing with the Saudis because of the untapped uh, potential of the oil reserves. A moral issue, it seems, outweighed by the, ben by the financial benefits. Um, was this something that weighed heavily on many within the uh, Wilson administration from the beginning? Well, I'm not sure, sure about the Wilson administration. That was really prior to the discovery of oil and the uh, focus on Middle East resources. But we see this uh, conundrum to this day 
where mm. we are constantly trying to balance our concern for human rights with our uh, material interests. You know, we see it uh, just in the last few years with the assassination of uh, Jamal Khashoggi mm. and the reaction of many people to that and the argument that we should be cutting our ties with the Saudis because of that and other human rights abuses, but they've been abusing human rights for decades. Right. And one of the things I wrote about in the book was in particular their anti-Semitism and discrimination against Jews, which the US government basically turned a blind eye to because it was much more important for us to keep our good ties with the Saudis and there was always this fear, which I believe was totally unjustified, that if we spoke out against what the Saudis did in terms of human rights, that they would stop selling us oil. But they really never had that uh, option because what else were they going to do with the oil? They couldn't drink it uh, and they couldn't uh, sell it to the same, uh, for the same profits to others. And they also uh, relied completely on the United States for their security. From the Saudi perspective, they only care about one thing, and that's keeping their royal heads connected to their royal shoulders. And it's the United States that has guaranteed that since the 1930s. Yes, because there was many instances throughout the book where the Arabs had threatened to do business with the Soviets, uh, with socialist Arab countries, and, and, and you wrote at some length about how the Arab League threatened to deny pipeline rights and force the U.S. to capitulate to its demands. How much of a factor did this have on American foreign policy in the early 20th century? And as a follow-up, approximately how much funding do the Saudis donate to U.S. lobbyists? Uh, well, to answer the last question, I haven't looked at the numbers for a long time, but they have given... You know, millions of dollars to U.S. Mm. universities and tens of millions to lobbyists. I haven't uh, ever sat down, I think, and figured out the totals mm, right. because it's much more difficult to calculate all of the money that go to the various uh, lobbying institutions. Mm. But in terms of uh, their influence, they have been able to convince the United States for many years that it was to its, to its advantage to minimize our ties with Israel. And that was the case until really the late 1950s, where Eisenhower, who was often viewed as the most anti-Israel president, or one of the most anti-Israel presidents, really came to the realization at the end of his uh, second term that the Saudis were totally unreliable, that they were not uh, interested in helping us uh, in the Middle East, and that really the only reliable ally that we had was Israel. Mm. That didn't stop many of the State Department from continuing to make their case up until the present day, but it was a losing argument in the end because the United States did in fact strengthen its ties with Israel. And you actually see a parallel movement that contrary to what the Arabists predicted and continue to say, as US relations with Israel got better, our relations with the Arab states actually got better. 
Yes, because you, you wrote that Eisenhower was the least pro-Israel president in modern history, but the Arab relations were weakening and this led to the socialist Arab states to turn to the Soviets, to which Nasser, the Egyptian president, declared that oil was a source of strength for Arab support against Western imperialism. This was the start of the tug of war for influence between the US and Saudi Arabia. Was this the turn for the Saudis in acknowledging their worth overall? Well, it was really in the, in the 60s that the Saudis began to, I think, justifiably be concerned that their resource was being controlled to a large degree by the West that uh, Aramco, the Arab uh, American oil company was making decisions based more on the interests of uh, the United States than necessarily on that of the Saudis. And they subsequently nationalized the oil industry as did other Arab uh, nations. And that really was one of the major turning points in terms of our relationship with them and their ability to try to use oil as more of a lever to influence our policy. You, um, there, it, there was an important issue you raised in the book, which was regarding the strengthening of Israeli ties with the US government under Roosevelt, which led the Soviets to support socialist regimes in Syria, Libya, Iraq, and Egypt. This led the United States to become more focused on the Saudis uh, for fear of losing to the Soviets. Can you elaborate further on that period? Well, that's right. There, look, it was the Cold War and we were in a competition all over the world. And the Middle East was one of those battlegrounds where uh, the United States and the Soviets were competing for influence. The Arab states, as you say, had moved toward, uh, some of them had moved towards uh, revolutionary governments and socialism and were more sympathetic to the Soviets who were more than happy to provide them with arms and aid. And the United States was trying to counter that with support for Israel, the one democracy in the region that was pro-West and to at the same time ensure that it didn't lose its access to the oil resources. Now the Saudis, uh, to their credit, I guess, is they were very clever that they always played on those Arabist fears. And they would tell the United States that if we didn't uh, do X, Y, or Z, that they might turn to the Soviets. And it was ironic because the uh, Saudis were, uh, as Muslims, uh, among the most anti-communist countries in the world. And they would speak out against the godless communists all the time. But when it came to dealing with the United States, they would try to play on uh, our Cold War fears. And they did this uh, all the time when it was a matter of getting the United States again to support their survival. That was their main interest. It wasn't uh, selling the oil, they could always make profits on the oil. Their concern was that uh, they might be taken over by, at first, the Hashemites. You know, at the beginning in the 
40s, early 50s, when the United States diplomats would meet with the Saudi king, the king would spend the first couple of minutes saying, you know, you really uh, have to do something about the Zionists, you shouldn't support uh, the state of Israel. And after ranting about that for maybe a few minutes, then they would go into what really concerned them, which at the beginning was the Hashemites, who were uh, originally from the Arabian Peninsula and now were uh, the king in Jordan, that they were afraid that they would try to take their country back in Arabia. So the, United, the Saudis wanted US backing against the Jordanians. Then in the later 50s, after Nasser took over in Egypt and Pan-Arabism became popular, the Saudis would again meet with the US and tell them how upset they were with our policy supporting Israel. But what they really were worried about was Nasser and the potential of him uh, creating a uh, upheaval in Saudi Arabia and what would the United States do to support us against, support them against NASA. Then after the 50s, it became the Soviets as they saw the United States so concerned with Soviet spread of communism, they would play on that in the discussions with American diplomats and tell them, you know, you, you need to protect us from the Soviets. And now it's the same thing. What did they tell uh, diplomats that uh, what really concerns them is not Israel, it's Iran. And by playing on the United States concerns about Iranian influence, uh, again, they were able to get a lot of support from the United States for uh, major arms sales. I mean, one of the stories that I emphasize throughout the book is the, the sale of arms to the Saudis that we've spent or, or uh, sold them more than $100 billion worth mm. of uh, weapons on the pretext that this will help them defend themselves against Jordan, against uh, Nasser, against uh, the Soviets, against Iran. And it never was true that this tiny, uh, relatively tiny army that for much of its history uh, couldn't take care of the weapons we gave them, never was a threat to any of those governments or any of those uh, potential adversaries. You see it today, even after giving them these hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, our most sophisticated weapons, mm. the Saudis are unable to defeat the Houthis in the poorest country in the world in Yemen. So how were they going to seriously defend themselves against the Soviet Union or now against Iran? But it's in the interests of uh, the United States and especially U.S. presidents to sell them these weapons anyway, because for one thing, it creates jobs in the United States. It creates jobs in places that are worth a lot of electoral votes to presidential candidates. And it lowers the price of those weapons to the Pentagon. The more you sell, the lower the unit cost. So there are a variety of reasons why we sell them weapons that they really can't use and don't need uh, for our own interests. And again, the Saudis have played on that over the years. It's also an important way that we get our money back for the oil. We pay them for oil, they pay us for weapons, and it, uh, more or less evens out. 
Right. It, it, well, one thing about the book uh, was that um, I noticed that it was, uh, I, I couldn't believe the amount of money the United States threw at them in terms of weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. There was one point in the book under the uh, Lyndon B. Johnson administration um, in 1965, uh, even though he becomes Israel's main supplier of weapons, he sent a half a billion dollars in arms and installed missile defense systems, even though what you just raised is very important, that Saudi Arabia itself has a very weak military. Uh, it seemed almost as if uh, we were waste spending millions, billions of dollars over the years, for many long years to the present day, to a country that legitimately cannot defend itself. And that's the reason why we become the defenders of the country. Wouldn't this be waste spending? Well, as I say, it's not uh, a waste from the perspective of presidents getting, uh, in, being able to say they created jobs uh, and the Pentagon being able to lower the costs, uh, us getting our uh, oil money back, essentially. You know, from an economic perspective, it makes sense and to some degree a political uh, perspective. From a strategic perspective, it makes no sense at all because the Saudis really do not contribute much of anything. And in the past years, they were counterproductive to uh, supporting US interests. I mean, one of my favorite stories back in the earlier days, I forget what year exactly it was when the Saudis, basically whatever the Saudis want, uh, we give them. So at one point they wanted a Navy. And so we gave them, uh, assistance to create a Navy. And then they, I think it was one of the US officials who talked about how the problem with the Saudi Navy was that none of the, none of the uh, people serving on ships wanted to be far enough away from shore where they couldn't see the land. Uh, they really were uh, unable to use uh, the weapons that they were being given for many of those years and uh, wasted a lot of the resources. They would have uh, fighter jets sitting in the desert, mm -hmm. eroding in the sand because they didn't take care of them or didn't have the means to take care of them. And now they're much more modern, of course, and, and can maintain uh, the weapons largely, again, with aid that we give them to maintain it. But they are unable to contribute much in terms of uh, defending American interests. And they're not particularly interested in doing that either. You touched a little bit on, um, uh, just a couple of minutes ago, about uh, waste spending in the kingdom. Um, you wrote a, a, a quote in the article about Prince Bandar bin Sultan stated in an interview that as much as the 50 of the $400 billion spent in 30 years of nation building was lost either due to corruption or mismanagement. This is still true today because there's still a lot of corruption, mismanagement in the country. How prevalent is it today than it was then or has it gotten worse? Well, it's hard to know because that's the kind of thing that again, isn't transparent and unless mm. there's an investigation, which I don't think there has been any time recently, the don't find out about. I talked in the book about some of the instances in the United Kingdom 
where they would be involved. Uh, some of their companies were involved in some uh, corrupt practices in order to win uh, military contracts from the Saudis. There were lots of instances where there are various kinds of payoffs. And periodically, that kind of information comes out. But there's no question that there's a lot of corruption in uh, Arab governments and that various people are taking payoffs or cut, cuts of the, the various contracts. But it's difficult to know, again, unless there's a particular investigation, uh, what or how much of it is going on today. But I don't think that anybody would uh, doubt that there are people who are uh, siphoning off uh, funds and making uh, profits off uh, these various contracts. You, um, by, you wrote in a book by the 1970s, the Arab lobby uh, noticed formidable changes. And this was rather important decade for the Saudis as they didn't have a domestic lobby to speak of. But in 1973, King Faisal told oil company executives that Israeli Zionism and the communists were on the verge of having American interests thrown out of the area. This was the first time the Saudis were assertive toward changing US policy. How effective was this for the Saudis in regards to US foreign policy in the region? Well, for many years, the principal lobbyists for the Saudis and for Arab interests in the United States were the oil company executives who had significant investments in the region, which they wanted to protect. And the Saudis would periodically uh, threaten them if they didn't contribute to supporting their interests in Washington. They lobbied heavily and would, especially in the 70s, uh, engaged in some significant public relations activities. But in the broader sense of foreign policy, their influence was relatively meager, that it didn't stop in the end the United States from uh, having a close relationship with the United, uh, with Israel. You know, in the 73 war, while the Arab executives were uh, lobbying against supporting Israel and the Saudis and the other oil producers had implemented a boycott, uh, the United States still continue, continued to support Israel and gave Israel emergency aid and resupply at a critical time that helped them win the war in 1973. And part of it had to do with uh, the bigger picture for the United States, especially at that time in terms of the Cold War, that for Kissinger and Nixon, uh, it wasn't just about economics, it was about the spread of communism and the importance of US weapons defeating Soviet weapons so that none of the other parties in the Middle East and elsewhere in the world would think that siding with the Soviets over the United States would be in their best interest. So that was a probably much more important factor in US calculations than whether the uh, oil companies were unhappy with our 
support for Israel. 1973 seemed to be a very key year because that was also the year of OPEC declaring an oil embargo on non-friendly states, and that included the United States. Also, on October 6, 1973, um, Egypt, led by Sadat's wish to regain honor among the Arabs, uh, along with Israel, attacks Israel, uh, along with Syria, attacks Israel. Now, five days later, King Faisal had met with Sadat uh, one month prior to the attacks and told Sadat that they would be attacking Israel with Faisal's blessings. Um, and at the same time, a couple of days later, Faisal asks President Nixon to stop supporting Israel. But Nixon, however, sent a real supply of military weapons to Israel after being asked to support uh, the Saudis. Uh, but the oil embargo was what was important here because this, was, this put a stop to um, American financial aid. Was this a turning point for the United States in their regards to the relations with Saudi Arabia? It could have been, but it turned out it wasn't in the long term. You would have thought that after years of the United States supporting the Saudis and again, keeping their royal heads on their shoulders that the Saudis uh, would have some degree of uh, gratitude and uh, loyalty to the United States. But the embargo was essentially a declaration of war against the United States. And mm. the United States would have been perfectly justified in uh, attacking the Saudis for this uh, economic aggression. It did have certainly a short-term impact because it created the idea that the United States was overly dependent on Middle East oil and that many people believed because of our dependence, we had to be much more uh, willing to pay attention to Saudi and other uh, Gulf Arab interests, but it didn't last that long. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we see today that uh, the United States is the major oil producer in the world that we don't depend on Saudi oil anymore. And that, you know, contrary to all the predictions back in those 70s and 80s that we would run out of oil and we would be in such desperate uh, straits, uh, that didn't happen. But there was, uh, you know, a period there for a decade or so where there was tremendous concern about the ability of the Saudis and uh, OPEC to damage our economy if we were not willing to support their interests. But again, uh, ultimately the United States uh, did strengthen its ties with Israel and the Gulf producers you know, gradually lost their influence and lost their interest in really <clears throat> fighting with the United States over Israel. And now we've reached sort of a, I don't know, culmination is the right word, but we've reached a whole new uh, <clears throat> epic where the Bahrainis and the UAE have made uh, peace with Israel and Saudi Arabia is rumored to be on the cusp so that there is a acceptance now 
within the, certainly the Gulf states that Israel is there to stay. There's no point in continuing to try to support uh, the destruction of Israel or to try to lobby the United States to withhold uh, aid or to withhold its support for Israel. And I think that Abraham Accords that were signed is a real <clears throat> landmark in the US Middle East policy that is a very positive development that I think uh, <clears throat> greatly changes the whole uh, dynamic. Yeah, the, under, under the Carter administration, we saw a turn for the strengthening of the Arab lobby in itself and a, uh, a turn for the worse in regards to the Israelis. Um, Carter wanted to reverse the sales. You wrote in the book that Carter wanted to reverse the sales of arms to Israel and stop using weapons transfers as a foreign policy instrument. Um, and Carter's national security advisor, Zygmunt Brzezinski, believed that it was important to solve the Palestinian problem to protect American interests in the Persian Gulf. Now, was this a turning point for the Saudis under King Fahd? Uh, King Fahd? Uh, and was this, did the Israelis themselves see this as a threat to Israeli interests in the United States government? Well, the, the relationship with the United States was still uh, very strong. And though Carter took uh, certain positions that were certainly um, unhelpful and opposed by the Israelis and the Israeli lobby, if you again look over the course of his administration, uh, one of the things that he did do was uh, sign the anti-boycott legislation, which was directed largely at the Saudis, who were the principal uh, instigators of a boycott, an economic boycott against Israel. And here was a, an example of uh, the Saudi supporters, including a lot of business interests, uh, trying to prevent the United States Congress from adopting legislation that was going to force the Saudis to stop at least their uh, economic boycott of US companies doing business in Israel. At the same time, you also had Carter uh, looking to create a peace agreement between Israel and its neighbors. His approach was very misguided, that he thought that he could put together an international conference that would lead to an agreement among all of the parties in the region for peace. That was such a bad idea that it drove Anwar Sadat to negotiate separately with Israel, because he understood that any international conference uh, would have resulted in Syrians or others being able to veto any agreement. <clears throat> so he went uh, on his own to the uh, chagrin of Carter and Brzezinski and the administration. They were uh, apoplectic when they found out that Sadat was negotiating secretly with the Israelis. And then when he went to Jerusalem and most of the world was uh, applauding uh, Sadat's courage and the step in breaking the psychological conflict, 
But Carter and his people were raging against Sadat because they saw it as undermining their plan for an international conflict. Once uh, Carter then got involved, you know, he took credit for the Camp David peace agreements, and that followed uh, he followed that with arms sales. So even though he had, had spoken through parts of his administration about not wanting to use arms sales as a uh, tool of foreign diplomacy, in the end uh, he sold uh, fighter planes to Egypt, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. It was one of the key periods of history is the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Almost immediately, uh, the global uh, Arab community descended into one area, which was a fear that it would leave open many countries to susceptible attacks. The Saudis decided to throw tens of millions uh, to the Afghan Mujahideen and to the Arabs that were coming in through Pakistan. Under the Reagan administration in 1981, they helped turn the tide of the war by signing a deal with the Taliban on the use of Stinger missiles, as well as the Mujahideen. At the same time, with the defeat of the Soviets, the, the, the superpower that Brzezinski warned that would be a threat to American imperialism in Eurasia and Southeast Asia in Europe. At the same time, the Saudis and the Arabs then created or helped, it helped to form this Islamic uh, Salafi uh, groups that we see currently today. Um, I, 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 the, qu the question would be, was the price worth it? And I know that's gonna be a hard question to answer. Well, we have to remember that the Saudis in particular, but others in the Gulf as well, have been uh, committed to very extreme forms of Islam since their inception. Now, Saudi Arabia has a uh, Wahhabi uh, tradition and that is one of the strictest forms of Islam, which is rejected by many of the other uh, Muslims in the region. And they have uh, been supporting as a government or as individuals, a lot of the extremists for decades. You also had the development of the Muslim Brotherhood, which started in Egypt, but then was supported by many of the other Arab governments and today by the Qataris in particular uh, and manifesting itself through Hamas, which we just saw uh, started a war with Israel. These are ingrained in those societies, some of this uh, extreme traditions. The governments themselves have tended to be more moderate in their policies, relatively speaking, and if you don't count things like uh, the Saudis beheading people and cutting off their arms for, for crimes, but in terms of their overall policies, they have not been to the extreme of, say, the Iranian 
uh, Islamic regime. But there's always been support for uh, radical Islam among the Saudis and among other Gulf Arabs, well, Arabs throughout the, the region, Muslims throughout the region. So a lot of the problems that we have today with groups uh, from Al-Qaeda to ISIS uh, are originating uh, not just in Saudi Arabia, but to a large degree in Saudi Arabia and creating problems that we still haven't solved today. And the Saudis for many years were not very cooperative in trying to constrain the more extreme elements both in their country and beyond. Today, at least the American intelligence tells us that they are much more willing to be helpful than they used to be. But these are currents that run through these, uh, some of these Muslim uh, societies that have given, uh, been given fertilizer, so to speak, mm. uh, to uh, continue to grow. Yeah, we, I mean, we saw this throughout the uh, middle period of the 1990s, and as well as the current period in Syria, where you had American intelligence uh, monitoring these groups. I, I've done uh, exhaustive uh, podcasts and, and written works about how the Central Intelligence Agency had monitored bin Laden and Al-Qaeda throughout the mid-1990s, but never shared that data with the FBI or the State Department. And in regards to September 11, 2001, the data regarding certain hijackers inside the United States, um, whom were financially supported by um, one Prince Bandar bin Sultan, uh, the, US, the former US Saudi ambassador, uh, his bank account through Riggs Bank, you know, deposits of $3,000, $4,000 over the, the 16 months went to the pockets of two known Al-Qaeda operatives inside the United States, Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, um, through intermediaries who were uh, Saudi operatives, Omar al-Bayoumi and Osama Basnan, um, who were inside the United States. And we're talking about California, and this is January of 2000, throughout uh, the 16 months. And the CIA knew about this, as well as the NSA, never shares this data. 9-11 um, happens. Um, and right after that, it seems that you, this influx of Salafi organizations, Libya, Syria, Iraq, uh, a resurgence of these very fervent groups, even more um, orthodox than, say, Al-Qaeda. Um, but yet, in 2011, uh, the United States were supporting Salafi organizations like Arar al-Sham, Jabhat al-Nusra, to help overthrow the Assad government using a program called Timber Sycamore, in which they helped train and fund these groups um, to overthrow these uh, almost the Shiite governments. Um, and, it, and, it, and all and right behind it is the genesis of that funding, Saudi Arabia. Uh, it just seems that for, for the United States, uh, there, there's like an almost a, again, a moral issue regarding the issue of financial benefits when it comes to the uh, oil reserves of, of Saudi Arabia. But at one point throughout all this, 
we have the oil ever ran out in Saudi Arabia. They offer nothing in in terms of benefit to the United States. Would you agree with that? They offer very little to the United States. And actually, along the lines of what you're talking about, which we, we didn't discuss yet, is that the Saudis have spent billions and billions of dollars as the principal funder of the building of mosques and Islamic schools around the world, including in the United States. And that these schools and mosques teach the Wahhabi version of Islam, which is, again, often very radical. And in Saudi schools uh, today, they continue to teach uh, extremism. One of the issues that uh, Congress has raised uh, frequently in recent years is the uh, textbooks in Saudi Arabia, which had all sorts of uh, anti-Semitic uh, and uh, anti-Christian content. And they've been trying to get the Saudis to reform that. But it wasn't just uh, in Saudi Arabia. I wrote about there was a school uh, funded by the Saudis in the state of Virginia, which had textbooks that were teaching many of these same ideas with you know, a famous uh, hadith that uh, is repeated uh, often by Muslim extremists that says uh, the Jews are hiding behind uh, trees and uh, mm. the Muslims say, oh Muslim, oh Muslim, oh uh, servant of God, the, the uh, Jews are hiding behind you, you should kill them. This kind of teaching has been common in Saudi textbooks that are used around the world. And so they've been contributing to extremism for decades through this educational system, which as I say, has also infiltrated American schools. You, you, one important issue, one pro, pro, seemed uh, a very influential person who helped solidify U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia is Prince Bandar bin Sultan. Uh, he served under three presidents, Reagan, Clinton, and Bush Jr. But it was his tenure under Bush Jr. which was the most noticeable. How effective was he in regards to making policy changes favorably for the U.S.-Saudi relationship? Well, he was very influential in terms of keeping the United States as a close uh, friend of the Saudis and a guarantor of their uh, security, that he was able to secure the large uh, weapons deals. Uh, he was able to uh, lobby the officials uh, on all issues of interest to the Saudi Arabia where he had unprecedented access. So people talk about the mighty Israeli lobby, the, the ambassador of uh, Israel can't just walk into the White House whenever he wants. He can't, uh, you know, he wasn't playing uh, tennis with the Secretary of State. Uh, this is the kind of relationship Bondar had for decades with American officials and the name of the game in Washington is access. If you want to have any influence or any power, you have to have access to the decision makers. So to the extent that he had the extensive access that he did, he was able to uh, persuade 
the United States to support a variety of things that were in the Saudis' interest. Ultimately, though, he couldn't get the United States to turn on Israel. So there's a, a limit to the influence of the Arab lobby. What does the Saudi lobby look like today? And are they still a formidable asset to American foreign policy? The Saudi lobby hasn't changed a great deal. Uh, it still relies to a large extent on the personal relationships of uh, diplomats and the uh, lobbying firms that it hires. And it also can rely to some extent on the diplomats and former diplomats who have served in Saudi Arabia and the Arab world who have a particular sympathy for their positions. The, you know, if, if you want to be a diplomat, what language would you study? It's not Hebrew where you could only serve in one country. Uh, so most diplomats you know, speak Arabic, they've served in uh, Arab uh, countries and they often grow very sympathetic. We call it clientitis where they begin to sometimes uh, support the interest of the Arab government uh, in the United States more than they support the U.S. interest in the Arab capital. So you have uh, various officials and former officials who continue to make the case for Saudi Arabia. And now probably the biggest issue, especially since Biden came into office, is, the, is this uh, conflict between our interest in promoting human rights and our interest in continuing to support uh, the Saudis uh, as a significant player in the oil business. And uh, it's something that the United States has always balanced more in favor of uh, our oil interests than human rights. It remains to be seen whether Biden will change that. It's doubtful. And if you think about over the decades, the United States has pursued uh, democracy all over the world, especially in Latin America, where we've uh, intervened often to try to promote democracy. The only uh, area in the world where we haven't actively promoted democracy is in the Arab world, where we were willing to look the other way uh, at these uh, authoritarian regimes, as long as they continue to be supportive of American interests in at least some way, shape, or form, even though, though they were always limited in what they did for us. I mean, one of the best examples of how unsupportive they are is at the UN. You know, if you go to the Jewish Virtual Library, my website, you'll see, uh, you can look up the statistics on how uh, infrequently the Arab states, including the Saudis, support US positions at the UN. And that's just indicative of the broader lack of support for interests that we have around the world. You have been uh, quite active as long as, uh, even before I graduated high school in 1988, uh, you've written many books. You've been quite uh, an active author and also uh, a lecturer. Um, is this uh, something that you're still continuing to this day, even under the COVID restrictions and what have you? Is there anything on the horizon for you? 
Well, most of my attention now is being focused on building up the Jewish Virtual Library, which is already one of, if not the biggest resources on Jewish history, politics, and culture in the world. We have more than 25,000 entries on everything from anti-Semitism to Zionism. Uh, we are averaging more than 1 million visitors a month. In fact, the last few days during the conflict uh, in Israel, we were getting more, almost 100,000 visitors a day. Uh, because we have credible information on all aspects of Jewish history. And I invite people to uh, sign up for our newsletter, which uh, we send out once a week with some of the highlights from the library, as well as uh, myths and facts, which is something I've been doing for many years now, where I try to provide a, the facts to rebut some of the most prevalent myths that are perpetrated or perpetuated about uh, Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship. So for example, uh, this week I'll be writing a fact about the uh, claim that Israel has used disproportionate force in Gaza. And so that's a major uh, full employment uh, forever activity responding to the myths of uh, the various anti-Israel and anti-Semitic parties out there. The book is The Arab Lobby, The Invisible Alliance That Undermines America's Interests in the Middle East. Thank you very much for coming on today, Dr. Bard. My pleasure. Thank you.